0: I'm David Kern.
1: I'm Heidi White.
0: And I'm Ian Andrews. This is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader, on which we are discussing Immortals' novel, A Gentleman in Moscow. We are discussing part two, basically all of, you know, like all of part two. It goes to about page, what, 167 or so if you're reading. But if, yeah, if you're following in the audiobook, as many of you do, it's just all of part two. So when you get to the end, stop listening at that point. <laughs> I mean, unless you're a psychopath. Oh, um, we've got lots to talk about. There is a, a tragic wine sequence in this book, uh, in this section, which we're going to have to... I think we'll probably have to spend 45 minutes of our hour uh, on that. <laughs> um, first, though, aside from aside from having to have endured that reading, that great tragedy, uh, how how are you each? Heidi, how how's it going? Have you had any good wine since last we spoke?
1: I felt like I needed to last night after I did my reading. You had to redeem so, it. Yeah, so I like pulled out a good bottle of wine, which we had with taco bowls on Monday night. So, or, well, no, Tuesday night because today's Wednesday. Taco yeah, Tuesday is. and a really good Bordeaux because I I just felt like we had to after reading.
0: That. How did it? How did it go with the with the with the taco bowls?
1: It was. They're actually really good. I make a mean <laughs> taco bowl if I do say so myself. <laughs>
0: What's the yeah, what's the me uh, meat that you that you did?
1: Oh, just ground beef and my taco bowls. It's just like an easy I yeah, yeah, worked yeah. all day. Yeah. Yeah. And Tuesday, so yeah. just rice and ground beef and lots of toppings, fresh guacamole, of course. Can't have a taco bowl without guacamole, and a good Bordeaux because we are living the good life.
0: And a good Bordeaux is way more um diverse and uh uh what's the word that I'm looking for? I don't it can it can
1: pair with anything. It can pair with, with a taco bowl. It's, it can pair with an osobuco. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's a good it's wine. It's diverse, it was, resilient. I, did not, I actually did look for a Barolo, but I didn't have any <laughs> in my in my wine chest. So sadly,
0: Ian, how are you? Doing great,
2: doing great. I didn't, uh, I didn't get a good Bordeaux. Do you have tacos is, though? Which is sad. No, uh, it was burgers last night. We actually have been on a bit of a culinary adventure. A friend of ours convinced us to try Hello Fresh. Oh yeah, um, mm-hmm. which is no free ads. Honestly, so much it's fun. no free it's good. ads. Yeah, exactly. It's really good. It's nice delicious. A
1: box. It's fresh. Yeah, and, all the yeah.
2: ingredients are super fresh. Recipes are pretty good. I think we've had like. Two weeks worth of boxes, and there's been maybe one dud. Like we're keeping most of the recipes mm-hmm. to make them later. Like it's it's been pretty awesome. So that's well, what we've been doing you on the you color, All the
1: condiments and the little tiny jars. Yeah, like, I like really it. Feels like, like, like we're playing things. house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: Like, <laughs> the borrowers get to make dinner. It's super yeah. fun. <laughs> <laughs> the borrowers get to make dinner. uh That's a good little uh, literary reference there, Ian. Oh, uh, like plug what you got to plug. What's going on? What what are you guys up to? Oh man, we are,
2: it's the fall, man. We are reading and teaching and recording all the time. That's just what's happening all the time.
0: And the, and the, uh, the big book you're reading for those who have, you know, maybe they didn't listen all the way to the end last week. What's the big book you guys are reading on how to eat an elephant.
2: We're just starting Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's epic. Mm. And, uh, thus far it has been a real treat we're taking slightly larger bites of this book than we did of War and Peace, um, so hopefully it won't take us quite a full twenty-six months like War and <laughs> Peace did. <laughs> um, but it's been great. We met Jean Valjean this week. Uh, what a what a scurrilous character he is when he's first introduced. It's been awesome.
0: Uh, and Heidi, what about you? What do, what do you got to plug?
1: Oh, man. Well, same as Ian. It's the beginning of the school year. Many of our listeners relate to this. I know it's just a lot of stuff. Uh, So lots of recording over here, too. And then this weekend, um, I'll be at the Anselm Conference in Colorado Springs. Awesome. And then um, next weekend, I will be in Sterling, Virginia with the Searcy Regional Conference. Uh, as well. So it's a season of travel and the beginning of the school year. And it gets so I'm thankful we get to read some really good books and talk about them. That's kind of honestly it's work, but it's it's like sanity keeping, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I have to sit down and read a great book and talk about it with some of my friends. Like this is the life.
2: <laughs> I was just thinking that yesterday. I took I took this book, Gentlemen of Moscow and Les Miserables and Remains of the Day. To a coffee shop, and my job, like my job for the afternoon, was to sit and make progress in these three awesome novels. And I just think, man, I got the best job in the world. This is amazing.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. The only problem is that there is only so much time. That's the, the only thing that stresses me out about it. Is that I <laughs> always end up like, okay, I got, I have one hour to do all the reading for the show, and this <laughs> the hour is not flexible because the show starts in an hour. <laughs> um, that's right. So that's the but you know it's it's uh it's kind of like school right. As-
1: they say exactly. <laughs> they, do. they do say that. <laughs> that one guy said that.
0: But if all you know, if people want to add more reading to their lives, they could also go to closereads.substack.com and they could sign up and they could follow along with us on on our long books like East of Eden, which we're doing right now. And also, they could get access to Heidi's monthly column, which goes up today. Today, September twenty eighth. we today. So yeah, you can you can also uh, check out that. So by now, by the time this episode ran, most of you have probably read it. But in the strange event that you didn't. Go check that out at closereads.stubstack.com. Okay, A Gentleman of Moscow. Enough of the (laughs) dilly-dallying. I say that like it's your fault. Um, Mm -hmm. We've got lots of questions. We've got to talk about wine. But I want to talk about virtue and vice. Mm. Because I've been thinking about how, unlike many books of our time, this is a book that is kind of consumed by the notion of virtue. It presupposes that virtue is an inherently good thing. It presupposes that there are virtues that are worth aspiring to. It presupposes that there are vices that one should avoid and via habit and practice strike from one's day-to-day life. But that got me thinking. This is a character who, uh, and the Count, I mean, is a character who, I can't decide if the degree to which he is complicated. So here's the question that I had. This is a book, as I say, about virtue and vice. What are the virtues and vices of the count? What are the virtues and vices that our main character displays and uh, and lives and lives with? And I, I ask this, and I'm going to say this, so give you a chance to think a little bit. I ask this because I was thinking about one. This is a book that presupposes all those things that I just said. Um, it also kind of presents its protagonist as sort of inherently good, but also not up against like it's up. he's up he's obviously like in the he's sort of in prison, but he's also not up against challenges that other people are out on the streets, right? and it makes a lot of that. And so I just I kept thinking, what does the book want us to think about virtue? By its character. Like, is the character himself, as we know him through the first two parts, consistent with what the book is presupposing about virtue and vice? Um, and I, and I, don't, I don't ask that question as a gotcha question to say, if he doesn't, it's not good. That might be part of the point. Um, so H- Heidi, let's, let's just start with virtues and then we'll talk about wine a little bit. Perfect. But um
1: I think that those two things go together. So virtue um, vice
0: and vino. Yeah. So where w- what are some of the virtues that particularly stand out about Count Rostov for you?
1: Um I I um I think that he is loyal. Um I think that he is inherently kind. Like there's this capacity for relationship and empathy that seems just kind of natural to him. Like he can read people really well. He knows where to put him in dinner party, that kind of thing, which is a skill, but also does come from a, a a virtue, like a a great heartedness. I think that he is um, patient and I think he has a capacity for joy that is a virtue i think if you were to put him in i um I kind of naturally do this in my head i don't know why i do this i i will i will meet people or read literary characters and kind of put them in the ranks of socrates yeah bronze silver and gold soul kind of thing like categories you know um, why you
0: do that because you've read socrates
1: that is probably true. And it kind of sticks in your head.
0: Um, I mean, I know it's not Socrates writing yeah. it, but you get my point. Right. Um, you can't read stuff by these people that's like so clear and, and, and ask just, the right questions and just like never think about them just again.
1: Like, exactly. Yes. And I, I think he has a, this, I think he has a silver soul. He's like a chest kind of person that has this like big he has a great, I don't want to say big heartedness because that sounds shallow. I'll use great. Like he has like a great heart and that according to Socrates, and I think he's right, is a virtue. It could, it could, it has a dark underbelly capacity for vice that, um, that we can talk about as well, but there's just this, mm, this, this big capacity in him. I keep using that word. Um, and most of his virtues seem very oriented towards relationships. He's a good friend, he's a good lover, he's he's uh he he always has good manners. Uh he can he knows what people at the table next to him need to hear about wine or about Russia or whatever it is. Um and and he knows when to speak and when to be silent and when to hold back and when to lean in and um, and that's partly his training as a gentleman to use the word of the title, but also partly, I think an inherent kind of talent or capacity for great heartedness. So that's my answer. I don't know. What do you, what would you add to that, Ian? I like this question a lot.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I, um, I agree with you. I think that his virtues such as they're given to us are definitely oriented around his vision of people. He sees people clearly. I don't know that he sees himself very clearly. And Maybe that's one of the vices that that we could talk about is um, when when we get and this is jumping ahead when we get to the very end of our section and he's contemplating suicide. Um, I, this is ter- this is terrible. I'm really outing myself here, but he, I it was it made me chuckle a little bit that he walks up to the edge of the roof and says goodbye, my country. Right, like it's a little. Melodramizing, yeah, melodramatic, bit, right? Yeah, he's... there's some acting, and I think there's some acting in, in pretty well all of his interactions. Um, I agree. The interaction in this section that calls that out and that turns him into a ghost, right, an apparition, um, is one where someone else's acting is superior, where he ends up not being the one in control of the tone of their encounter. And um that really shakes him up. We're, we're given to understand for like a year or more that really shakes him up. Um, so I think that that obsession with control and using his powerful personality and his good breeding and his fine taste and all of this to cultivate a persona um isn't necessarily honest or vulnerable of him. And I think that I think that might be part of the reason he ends up considering suicide in these scenes um, it's an alternative to being what he actually is which is um, imprisoned and bereft
0: so so you so the vice then is that he's sort of actually or performative in in the presentation of of what he presumed presume, assumes our virtues
2: yeah yeah i think so and this is this is obviously to gloss over uh some hedonism and materialism and right i mean he's been he's been raised in wealth and continues to have it despite his prison and so there's some um he's he's often drunk and uh d- doesn't have any problem uh pursuing a, a one night stand with a lovely actress in the hotel right there's some obvious um vices or at least following I think, <laughs> yeah exactly being carried along <laughs> um but i I just think the the deeper issue is is one of whether he really really knows himself or sees himself very clearly and um so I don't know what we'd call I don't know how we'd label that in terms of virtue or vice, but I think it's definitely in the demerit column
0: Heidi, do you agree with that that he i mean is it one of these kind of things where the, a lot of these virtues that you're talking about his kindness, his patience, his capacity for joy, his loyalty those are things that are are just performative? and oh go ahead
1: i think part of the battle for somebody like the count and here's this is you said you're outing yourself and this is me outing myself i have Excellent. all of these same virtues and Love all it. of these same vices like um he's very vain mm-hmm. and um and so vice his vice i think his primary vice is vanity mm-hmm. and i also think that his his Capacity for all those things could be reduced into simply being a gentleman in the superficial sense. And which we know from now he's kind of on this journey of self-discovery, which to your point, and he doesn't quite recognize that yet. He doesn't know that's what's happening in right. him. Right. Um, he is he just is kind of like being carried along um by his like. These memories are like washing over him, which is kind of a normal thing to happen to a middle-aged man uh, oh, yeah. or a man moving towards middle age. Even and, if you're not imprisoned. Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and and his circumstances... Um, kind of force him to wrestle with, with those, that normal human experience, uh, in a way that he, he wouldn't necessarily have to, if he was just still surrounded by all the trappings of a gentlemanly life, mm. uh, in his country house and, and see outside of St. Petersburg or whatever. Um, and so that part of the Count's journey is that his isolated life is forcing him to, to reckon with the mystery as well as the manners. Mm. And um, and that is what must happen to us to become great souls. But for him, it's just, it's not the same kind of heroic journey that we see in um in somebody who can go out and live intrepidly. Like he, he's, he has to do it alone. Um, and I like your question a lot, David. I do think that his um vices are uh the dark underbelly of his virtues, which I think is true for all of us, right? Like, he's his loyalty also leads him to be kind of petulant and selfish sometimes. And his, you know, his, his appetites are like his capacity for joy have been so narrowly kind of um constrained to the Epicurean life of good taste that that now he's that that that's become a bit of, that's become a vice for him. Hmm. And, and so that is, yeah, I think his vices are at the dark underbelly of his virtues, which is true for all of us. And I think he's very well written by M.R. Tolles in that way. Um, But in this section, we are taken from the count as this like devil may care, happy go lucky. uh, Like I'm going to make the best of a bad situation to an actual human kind of downward trajectory into having to face the darkness of of his own soul and his circumstances and 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 at the end he's ready to take the easy way out yeah
2: he doesn't handle it very well yeah he's always
1: think. always perfectly poised, right he's always the gentleman he always has the best manners even the day he's gonna go commit suicide he's still like, in the bar, teaching these guys about what it means to be Russian, like, and buying everybody Mm -hmm. a drink and leaving notes from beyond the grave. He's going to be a gentleman. He's organized his finances and, uh, and, and all of these things. However, the question of the novel is really stark right now, which is what does it
2: really mean to be a gentleman?
1: Yeah. And I think these outward trappings he's been content with, or is there something more to it? Go
2: ahead. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Another way to, to phrase that same idea would be, uh, is, does he actually know what it is to be Russian? When he says goodbye, my country, is he saying goodbye to a country that existed? Or is he saying goodbye to to a tradition-laden um, culture that wasn't as universal as he thought it was? And I think his his relationship with Abrams, um, or just Abram, not Abrams, um, the the handyman on the roof, the beekeeper, is really, really interesting in that regard. The things that they connect <laughs> over have very little to do with the count being a gentleman or being someone of manners. Um, in fact, the very first moment of that, he is robbed momentarily of his of his discerning palate. He can't figure out what the taste behind the honey is, right? He has to be told. That's a new thing for him. How could he have missed it, That's right? a poignant moment. It is. It's beautiful. But I I think the suggestion is, and you're right to, to connect it to the idea of being a gentleman, but to step into the world of the story, if this is about Russia, that scene in the bar where he's trying to describe Russia to them, he's describing parts of it, but clearly based on the activity of of. What we're led to believe is a vast majority of his countrymen that's not the experience of all russia um and so I don't know. maybe he's being introduced into into a category of reality in his life that he hasn't had to hasn't had to struggle with before or that what? he's been running from that's another another
0: possibility go ahead, david We did in this section though get a taste of his previous life. We get the the anecdote about his sister's death and and her sort of fleeting romance with this guy who he doesn't like and what he thinks is his role culpability in culpability and that guy and ultimately dying and that his own not being a not being able to say goodbye to his sister when she dies of scarlet fever and stuff and tolls is funny be, i mean he it's funny because he drops in a funny line in the middle of that really heart-wrenching story where he's the, the english guy says oh did she die of a broken heart And he's <laughs> like no, that only happens in novels. So, like <laughs> tolls maintains this sense of humor even as he's talking about this very sort of dark thing. But when we look at that story, that's where we be, it, this, the character begins to become more complicated. And what I would love to hear from you guys is whether you what you think the Count and maybe the book itself thinks of his actions in in those in that story. He obviously feels guilty that he wasn't around his sister and he feels bad that the guy died and stuff like that. But he tells the story so winningly and with such charm and uh, with so much the voice of the narrator that it's hard to know exactly how we are supposed to assess or judge his own actions. Like, What does he think of his actions? There's this question of what does it mean to be a gentleman? Mm -hmm. Standing up for your sister's honor is a big deal, right? Yeah. Just throwing down the gauntlet for a duel is a it's a big Russian thing, right? Um that gets <laughs> talked about earlier in the book. Um and so I I'm, I'm I've been thinking a lot about about this question of how does the book want us to think of Count Rostov earlier? Ian, go ahead. I
2: I think that we're the voice of of Tulls, in my estimation in that particular scene is the Englishman who says, I think you might be taking this a little too far in the way you remember. I'm not sure all of this was actually He's like a narrative,
0: narrative balancing act.
2: Right. Exactly. And, and what I see going on in the count there is that the way he remembers the story. And by the way, this is not a, a judgmental comment. This is the way we all remember stories about our lives in all of those stories. We are the main character. We're the hero. Right, we're yeah. the, we're the point of all of these things. And um it, it is the habit of relationships to remind us, to draw us away from that, to remind us that we're, we're not. characters in other people's stories, right? Um, yeah. And ultimately all characters in a story that's being written uh, about our creator, right? And so there's, there's I can see him remembering himself, um, even even if it's negative, even if his memories cause him guilt, there's still an idolatry of sorts. Because it is down to him and his actions or his lack of action that the life of this man and of his sister um, uh, were taken. And I, I think there may be an implication about Russia politics and culture in there as well. It is down to him to, as in his position as a gentleman, preserve Russian society. And mm-hmm. what's happening in this section is he's becoming a ghost. Um, or maybe another way to put it is he's becoming furniture in this hotel. Um, yeah. his presence is no longer surprising to anyone and no one feels the need to, uh, make him feel good about himself because he's just always there. And that invisibility that he feels, um, is actually a, a true representation of what being alive down here in the world looks like absent vulnerability and relationship, right? What puts you on the map as, a, as a being is, relationships with other eternal souls, but being a gentleman and being a culture preserver, being a culture maker, those things, they're not sufficient to bear the weight of that, of that personal need for being seen and validated, which is why he keeps going back to Nina, right? Where's Nina? Because this, yeah, and Abram, right, exactly. These are people that see me and appreciate me. I need them in order to be okay. And that's a step away, I think, and a positive step away from this, this idolatry of self that we've been, we've been sort of describing.
0: Go ahead, Heidi. You were waiting to.
1: Yeah. Pounce. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, that sounds like me, right? Um, yeah, I I can't remember the question. So can you remind me what I'm supposed to say?
0: So you can just respond to him.
1: <laughs> okay. Um,
0: I, can you I remind find me what this... I'm supposed yeah. to say. <laughs>
1: I mean, I'm sure I have a thought I was just so uh, well, I mean we can move on that <laughs> it was no, a great comment I, like, <laughs> yes, I just was so into it that I forgot how it began,
0: so, <laughs> but it also looks like you're taking notes, so you've got things I, to say.
1: yes, I really like what you just said about his grief over becoming furniture of the hotel. like I just thought that was really a really insightful um comment I think this whole section is very moving to me um I find it I think this is for me the most memorable this this is the most memorable section of the book for me the mm. wine scene is everything like that is such an powerful someone's gonna taste shot right now objective correlative for the whole problem of the novel is the wine right and yeah. um and the I just think it's so brilliant on a literary level, as well as like moving on an emotional level, uh, even for people, I think, who don't care about wine. And I know we're going to talk more about it and see why there's this grief about it. Um, But this whole section is just this systematic progression of loss for the count, mm-hmm. beginning with this scene with the bees, like the loss of his palate, which considering how closely connected that is with his identity, which you just so beautifully explored, Ian, um, in your comment. It's it's not something to roll your eyes at, the fact that he can't identify the lilac. It's a big deal because the reason he can't is because he's cut off from his land. Yeah. He's cut off. He has to stay. He's stuck. He can't ever leave. And so the first thing that he loses is his is his palate um, with the honey and, or it's not, it's not the first thing he loses. It's just his first self-aware connection with what he's losing. Um, and, and there's so, so much grief in that. And I just think Tolles writes it with such this understated, like dignity and, and, and beauty that you just feel this wrench, even if you can't put it into words, like this wrench is like, why couldn't he? so sad that he doesn't know that that's lilac. And and it is sad. It's not a small thing. Um, Because in losing his palate, in losing his ability to identify what kind of this alchemy, this golden alchemy that the the bees can do, that they can make. Bees are always this wonderful metaphor for everything, right? Then um, in losing that, he's losing... It's not about... His it's not just about his palate; it's about his connection to the land, his connection with his own past, his connection with with Russia itself, and and now he's aware of it. Now he has to look at it. Um, hmm. And in this section, he loses connection with the past, with the present, and with the future. Everything is lost here. He realizes what even Nene is his, moving. His he realizes exactly, David. Like he realizes what his imprisonment here is going to cost him. It is a gilded cage, but it is still a cage. And and as he loses it, he's coming to terms with the fact that he is a representation as this aristocrat of, of, of what Russia itself is losing. And and we see that in multiple ways. Uh, as, as Russia becomes a more industrialized and in urban society, they're losing the connection with the land which has always been a huge part of the russian identity and and losing his family obviously that's personal but that's also societal it isn't just himself losing his aristocratic family it's russia losing its aristocratic class like all these people are dying and or being marginalized like the counts Um, also he lost his honor, right? That's his, his perception of that story with his, uh, is, is that he lost his honor as a man. And, and that's why I think he reproaches himself so bitterly. And that's also true for Russia in losing these customs. They're losing their, um, identity as an honorable society with this long history. And that's becoming more and more bureaucratic instead of aristocratic. And that's a loss. And he's losing his friendships and relationships. There's this disconnect between him and Mishka, which is an, a, a disconnect that's representative of the whole society as well. And then of course there's the wine. And so there's just these severed connections that the Count is having to reckon with that are not just about him, they're about his whole country. Which is why to your point, Ian, when he's you know about to jump off and he's saying goodbye to my country, like he is... It is a melodramatic kind of posturing moment, some vanity there, um, and some self-importance, but there's also a real poignant mm-hmm. um declaration of loss that's national as well as individual.
2: Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. What what do you make, Heidi, of the fact that right after that declaration, and I agree with you, I think it's 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 both things, um, a little humorous and poignant but right after that declaration is when i who god the stars like whatever it is in this novel reminds him that actually um those things still belong to him when this this lower class man who has yet managed to be a link to him back to his childhood back to to happy memories interrupts his suicide and provides him with evidence that how would you even put, how would you even put it? Like the the, the juxtaposition of those two moments is really interesting to me. Um, it's that Abrams comes beautiful. in and it is, it's gorgeous. It's, it's salvific. It feels salvific. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Not just that he's not laying dead on the pavement, but also that some kind of hope has been restored. Um, it, what's going on in that moment? Like, what would you say?
1: Well, they just, I mean, tolls is just, he has all of these little like razor sharp details, right? And he builds, he's building towards something. We have that whole scene of um a there's all of these like threads are being thrown out in this section. And one of the threads is the temperature thread, right? Like the 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 small degrees in of temperature change uh can have this uh this enormous impact. And that's Yet another thing about the bees, right? The reason that the bees are returning is because usually at this time of year it's forty-five degrees, but it happens to be fifty degrees, right? And mm-hmm. so the bees are returning, and then they what they bring with them that is is ap- the the scent of apples from his home province, and also his own. This so it's just so beautiful. I just love it. Like even saying it feels like reducing it, right? It brings mm-hmm. with it this, the, um, his own recognition, he's able to reconnect with his memory. And, and, and to your point in through that, he, he's, he can say like, oh, that's apples. I recognize that from my home. So he's given back in a sense, just a small link to the past, which is as, since we know the book goes on, (laughs) um, there's, it's it's enough it's sufficient like my grace is sufficient for this moment right there's a mm-hmm. grace in that that is that is sufficient to keep him from jumping off the edge which i think is also um intended to to provide since since there's this intermingling this mirroring of the individual self and the national self there seems to be a casting a vision and hope for russia itself through the
0: count which i think is just really beautiful mm there are four i I would argue there are four key scenes or moments in part 2 these are the four and you can tell me if you agree these are the kind of the essential scenes that make up part 2 the wine scene where they where they're in the he's trying to order wine the waiter says you have a white or a red he gets taken down to the uh the cellar and sees that all the labels have been removed and like they're the stripping of the, of the wine right the sister story about his sister's um, death and the death of her, of his sort of this rival figure that he doesn't care for, who he shoots, and then um, ultimately the man dies via bayonet. Um, The bee scene plus the suicide, I'll just call it that, like that combination, the, the suicide attempt that's sort of stopped by the bee. <laughs> and then the fourth one is the... the um, I'm just calling it the seduction scene for because the yeah. seduction scene goes well together and we can debate exactly whether uh, the degree to which it is a true seduction. Um, so all of these are very interesting on their own, but he also puts them all in part two at the same time. He doesn't put one in part one. He doesn't put one in part three. These four things are the sort of key scenes of this 60-page section, which is a standalone section, right? Like some of the other sections are longer than this one. This one ends when it does for a reason it begins when it does for a reason. What do these four scenes have in common do you think that make them suitable partners for you know the the furniture of this section mixing my metaphors and whatnot but you know so so be it. He puts them together here for a reason i guess is the case that i'm making and i'm trying to figure like what are they what is it that they have in common that he that he is trying to to do with them or that they reveal?
1: I think it's that, um, what I said earlier, I I think at least part of it has to be that systematic progression of loss, what each one represents to him uh, in his kind of reckoning with his life um now that his superficial acceptance is no longer as ian said sufficient to the gravity of the situation um each of those things reveals something that has been profoundly lost to him um we didn't i didn't talk about the loss of the seduction scene which is i mean is is that's that's a male fantasy let's just say that right like some beautiful woman just grabs guy grabs you by the collar and forces you into bed. And here's what I want. Right. Like that, but there's also a loss um, to that because it, it makes him no longer master over his fate and no longer master over his relationship with women and no longer being able to be a his masculinity in that area is being a bit truncated, right? Like it's like, there's, he can't pursue or he can't, he can't follow through on that. Like it's, he is at the mercy of whoever's coming into the hotel. Right. And, and that's obviously a question all the readers are going to have. What about women? What about love, like for the count, right? And now this is one night stands are his only option to develop a relationship. And it's always going to be the woman in power and no longer him, which seems to be an important thing to him. So in all areas of his life. So I think there is a loss to that, um, even though it's a moment of pleasure for him. And then all the other things we kind of already talked about how those those scenes contribute to each of those four scenes. I think you're right, David. Those are right, about how important they are, that they, they all have something to do with the Count being kind of systematically um, disconnected from anything that has been important in his self-perception of his identity to this point. And I'm not a man, so you guys can correct me on that. But there does seem to be a bit of loss to his description of this. Like he's happy to be swept away, but there's, but there's a, but there, but dot, dot, dot.
2: Yeah. I No, I agree with you. I think, um, the, it, the loss doesn't sink in until at one o'clock in the morning, she rolls over and says, have a great night. <laughs> like it's, it's being used. He's been used. Um, I I think you're right. I think he's being stripped of all the things that made him who he was in his own mind. Um, even his relationship with with uh, Mishka, which we didn't we didn't highlight as one of the four most important scenes, but um, that's kind but of it. Kind, kind of starts the section and yeah. sort of brackets everything. And it's a colossal role reversal, right? Mishka is number one, free to continue moving about the city. As we described last time, he's looking up and seeing familiar constellations overhead for the first time in his life, whereas the constellations are unfamiliar to the Count. Um, and also, he's in love. He's the one who is pursuing a woman, uh, and that's new for the Count as well. So I think those two things kind of go together in my mind, like like he and Mishka being, having this role reversal and him being used by this woman. Um so yeah, I, I would just agree with Heidi. I think it's each of these scenes are a stripping away of something. I wonder though, if they if they also give something back. Um, and maybe we don't have time to go through them all one by one and ask that question, but it seems like there's there's a facade getting torn away and it is a loss because some of these things are objectively good things. But what remains is maybe truer and more honest.
0: Um, if he's if he's willing to to reach out and yeah it. I think that's important because I think for us as readers, this is an essential transition point because you kind of are thinking that this guy is a certain thing, and it's almost like this is all too good to be true. What's the real what's really the problem of this book? Like he's not a revolutionary. He's not really suffering that much he He's this sort of truly virtuous gentleman. and then we get this scene where he starts confessing things about himself and he has one nice stand and like there's all the you know he he is not that fluent in contemporary politics and he doesn't really understand what the common man is going through like there's just all these we begin to understand him as a more complex character than we were given in the first part of the book. So I think that's 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 essential. I, I want to talk about the seduction scene though. Heidi you called it a, a man's fantasy so here's the question I have. Not a
1: man. This is a... <laughs> I, that's an assumption on my part. But
0: anyway, go ahead. Okay, well, here's the question. Um, Is it bad? Is the scene bad? Like, does this work? Is it just Choles oh. dropping in a man's fantasy here? It, like, dramatically does it work. Does is it... Is it, like, adding a sex scene for the movie to get a r rating or like or to get you know to game the game of thronesification of of you know of something i mean but and also just is it bad like i don't mean like morally bad we can talk about if you want to but i mean like dramatically bad does this work
1: right yeah i thought you were asking at first about its moral badness and i i think that if we read it as morally bad we're not i i, I think we're not Reading the book right. Like I don't think that there is any moral judgment cast on the count in the, by the story itself for having a one-night stand the same way that we okay many so of that, us as Christians and parents would, you know, would be like that's true. Yeah. Then
0: yeah. can mm-hmm. it be more than just a fantasy?
1: Right. So I don't know if I, I agree with that. When I read the first Millen, you can absolutely Make your case about that. Maybe you're right. I um, but I think in terms of whether it works dramatically, when I first read it, the first time I read the book, I kind of thought, "Oh, this is dumb. Um, yeah, this is just I'm sure a you lot know, of gratuitous." Yeah. Yeah. That's the word However, I was looking for. There's a whole lot more story. There's a whole lot more story to go. So hang mm-hmm. in there. Um and we can tell that she's intended to be more complex than a one-night stand even in this section by the follow-up we have about her blouse. The addendum. Um so even now, yes, even now we know that mm-hmm. there's something more to this woman than just the 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 sexual escapade that she provides for the count that one night, because we see this follow-up about how he hung up the blast and she has this giant temper tantrum. And that kind of takes us a little bit more deeply into her character and maybe sets her up for, for, for coming back into the story. So tolls does do something. I think there that works dramatically. Um, But I do, I, first time I read it, I was like, Oh, well, here's the sex scene.
0: Mm. <laughs> You're right. Ian,
2: I do. I think it works. Um, I don't think it would have worked without the extended meditation and the list of illusions with him walking down the hall in the middle of the night. Um, and the line that really stuck out to me was, uh, "Of all of these ghosts, these legendary ghosts that he's talking about, um, they have no desire to see the living at all." Um, and it, you could read it and just say, "This is this is shame." Right. Um, But I don't think so. I think, I think the count actually in this experience um, was thinking harder than that and did encounter the kinds of things that we're talking about, the stripping of his agency. Uh, And so for that reason, it, it works and it plays nice with all the other scenes in the section because of that. So it, it works for me.
1: What about you, David? What do you think about this?
0: I just wanted and still wanted her to not be real. Like, I just think the whole book would be better if she was not an actual person. Like, I wish she, I think... Like, like, she's a dream or something? Yeah, I think she should be, like, a ghost. Oh. Um, That's what I wanted. Um,
1: A gentleman and a ghost in Moscow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it would would do some really interesting... uh, Interesting things. Huh. I, I don't know. I'm really torn on the scene because I do. It was very tasteful. Well, yeah, it's not like it's gratuitous in terms of the description. Right. Um, I just can't decide if I think like the, you know, she puts her napkin on the, t- on the plate and pushes back her chair and comes around the table and takes him by the collar and kisses him on the mouth. And then like, there's a very pardon, pardon this pun there was a very pregnant pause in the <laughs> book there. <laughs> like it's like he pauses there and then he comes back a minute later after the deed has been done. <laughs> and it's, it is tasteful. I just can't decide if I think it's silly and it is true. That's why I ask about the, it's where it's put in the book. Hmm. Um, I, I don't, I, I, well, there's stuff we can't talk about until later. Um, and I, I just, so I'm, I'm torn on it. So the fact that you both think it works makes me feel better about it, honestly.
1: Well, David, I noticed that you're a bit ambivalent about Tolles' women characters in general because this is the, the female character is the one that you think doesn't work in Lincoln Highway as well.
0: It's, she's a non-character and doesn't need to be in the book. Like it, when, you're, when you have a whole character that takes about 50 pages up and doesn't need to be in the book, that's a problem.
1: So maybe there's a maybe maybe there is, and and you tend to be like Anne and I tend to do. We we kind of need you, right? Because we 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 give unconditional positive regard to books in general, right? This is true. And then there's David, <laughs> who's like what does this work or not? And I like never think that ever about a book. I'm just like, well, there's the next thing. Like, this is, this is the artifact as <laughs> it is given to me. So I accept it completely. And, um, and, and so I think you're, I think you're bringing up a really important point and, and kind of goes to the general, like the, you guys can tell about on the video that I'm like waving away flies. Um, <laughs> this is my hand motions. So <laughs> um listeners imagine me just like wildly waving waving like <laughs> Yes. <laughs> um yeah, so I think that it brings up kind of the age-old question about uh can does it work for this male author to have written this female character? Does it work for this female character to have to have written this male character, right? And I will say that I don't know a single woman in my whole life who's ever done anything like this unless she was paid to do it. And I don't mean it just in terms of the age-old profession, but I also mean like actresses who are actually paid to portray women like this on the screen. So yeah, that's why I said male fantasy. Like this is not a normal thing that women do no matter how good looking and charming the man they meet in the hotel bar is there's so i think that you are yeah you're bringing up a really important point which is this does it work or does it just feel like it's being put into the narrative because it needs to be there
0: so it seems to me reason it seems to me he is after something thematic Mm-hmm. He's after something, which we'll use the term gratuitous for. I don't; it's not gratuitous in its description, but it's just like right. adding, a, adding a romantic escapade to this to the scene. Which both of those first, the two things can be true at the same time. Yeah. But what I'm trying to figure out is, like, as you said, Heidi, you never, you don't know any women who were at least willing to admit that they had ever done this. Right. Um, and I, th- I assume that like what you mean is like, seduced a strange man and a. In, a, In this particular
1: yeah. way. <clears throat> right. Even like there's plenty of women who have one night stands.
0: Right. Right. And are
1: bold. You know, like yeah, yeah. that's but this particular thing is so glaringly a, a
0: trope. Uh
1: a, a construction or a trope. Yeah.
0: And what I can't figure out is okay, the whole scene has an intimacy. It's like I I was calling this book like Russian adjacent, right? This is like an intimacy adjacent scene where it if if you were like, these people are married and this is a complicated marriage and this happened and they're having a meal and then you get that, that's something different, right? And it feels like there's an intimacy there. They're not like the their restaurant, their meal isn't even in the restaurant. Like they're eating in the room and they're having like there is there's a formal play like aspect of it. That then leads into their tryst, um, and so what I can't figure out is—is is he putting this here? Or the question I have is—is is he putting this here to reveal the the what he doesn't have, like the, the, to to sort of contemplate the intimacy that the count doesn't have? And so it's another thing he does not have, and if so, does that make it less of a sort of male fantasy? Which I actually think. It would be more interesting if the book is just like, yes, this is a ghost. She's either actually a ghost <laughs> and it's haunted or it is just a fantasy by a right. lonely guy. So ellipsis, pregnant right. pause.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but Ian, you had like a skeptical look on your face. Yeah, I don't like ago.
2: when you said that he's doing this for thematic reasons. I agree with you, but I think um. If the if the stripping away of everything that the count is didn't extend to to romance to sex, I don't know that and I haven't read the whole novel, but I don't know that he could really accomplish his, his aims here. It's gotta include that. Well, somehow. then
0: in that case, is the constant talk about the stripping of clothes and the blouses and all that kind of stuff, like is that too on the nose?
2: Maybe. Maybe. I mean, the more you talk about it, the more I think it might've been a little ham fisted, but this goes back to what we talked about in our last episode where he's not content to drop an illusion. He has to walk it out for you and explain to you exactly what he means by the illusion so that you don't miss it. Like, like it's, there are moments when he's a really great stylist and there are moments where as his editor, I would say, Hey buddy, let's walk it back a little bit here. You're dealing with intelligent readers. You know who
0: I decided that I think he's like, Who? Steven Spielberg. (laughs) Oh. So he's like, sometimes you're like, that is an absolutely banana shot. Like, the the mise en scene of that scene is incredible. Like, you know how to put an action sequence together or write a really funny comedic scene using Indiana Jones or whatever. And then sometimes you're like, you just used all the cinematic tropes in a little hand fisted way. And like, this is why people like their movies when they're 15, right? Like, he has this whole group of movies. But. They become these legendary, beloved movies, and mm-hmm. I watch a ton of Steven Spielberg movies right the day after I watch Paul Thomas Anderson movie or Jean luc Godard movie, and then I'll come back around and I'm like, we're going to watch George Lucas and Steven Spielberg do something dope again, right? Like I keep coming back <laughs> to <something> it <laughs> because it's it's so pleasant and but and it's not pleasant in a way that's like demeaning right yeah it's it's ple- it's it's he knows how to use the tropes in a really fun way and to use the art form in a fun way, and sometimes, yeah, it's a little bit like drinking lemonade not bordeaux right. I th- and I that's mean, okay
1: honestly it it's not the biggest cliche that we've read so far really like he can whistle and dogs just like sit at his feet
0: oh yeah. no it's not I yeah can, yeah
1: that and also and i, like I realize this is, is a sacred cow that i'm of, killing,
2: But the wine yeah. also a little cliche
1: totally it's uh, the book is full of cliches and i i But they are cliches that he owns so boldly and writes so beautifully that I'm, I'm all in. So like the seduction scene, I still think it works on literary level. I think it works in every way, just the same way it works that she loses control of her dogs. And then he is able to be the only one who tames them. Like that's a cliche, right? Like, and, or the little wise child who is, gives him the pass key to the hotel. Like this, they're there's so many cliches in this book. And I think that they work perfectly because he nails the writing and because he's telling a larger than life story about a larger than life character. And and, and he's doing something with the cliches that are there. He's like serving them on a silver platter. And I'm like, yes, please. I'll take another one, another course, another round.
0: <laughs> it, to me, he's much more in keeping, maybe I even mentioned this, but it, he's much more in keeping with like, Thomas Hardy, or if you go back to like, uh, who wrote Pamela? Samuel Richardson. Uh, And like a lot of those very, very early novels, which kind of do wear their, their themes. They're not
1: cliches. yet, right. Like they are. Yeah, yeah,
0: but they wear them like super on their sleeves. And so as modern readers who like, you know, if you read like, I think I mentioned this, like if you read a contemporary, like a 20th century writer, like Waugh or Don DeLillo, or even like someone like Tolkien, who's a little bit on the nose with his stuff, you're like, it feels of a different it feels like it's a different age, right? I think that's one of the reasons why people who love to read love this book is because mm-hmm. it feels literary in the sense that it doesn't feel like a modern novel. It feels like it's like it's written for a different time. Yeah. Yeah. I think well, if also you, being w- written for now.
2: Yeah. It Go works. Ahead. It works for me. I think you could, if you were, if you were predisposed as a reader, I, uh, there's, I have a friend who's very much this way and we're currently locked in furious debate about the rings of power. Um, if, if your habit in encountering art is to enter unconvinced and ask the author to convince you that he's got something to tell you, um, you might not like this book. You might, you might read all of or that you really just like as it. fan fiction, right? This could be fanfic of this set of tropes. Um, But man, it's good if even if that's the case, like I, I think I'm excited to see where he takes us on this on this journey. And so far, my suspicion is that he's writing kind of a fairy tale. And fairy tales often have really, really dark themes under the surface. But what's on the surface is beautiful and attractive and, and whisks you off somewhere. Um, That's, that's why we came down on it needs to be set where it's set and in the time that it's set in in order to work, right? Hmm. So.
0: I don't have any beef so far, to be perfectly honest. I think the B stuff is like subtle in a in a really nice way. That I think, like it's where you sh- it's where it shows his ability the most
1: mm-hmm. to be
0: to like point you towards this thing that I. It's not like I had to kind of think about those things in order to make the connections, whereas some of the other stuff is kind of like you run into it and you can make the connections, you know? Um yeah. And I don't mean On that as I don't mean that as an insult. Like right. On
2: the bees though, like what did you guys make of the of the last line? He's calls it, they're whirling about the sky like black dots, like the inverse of stars. What a I that's beautiful. I think it's I think it's a lovely line. What does he mean by that simile?
1: So my first thought was it's an it's a reference to Dante and the stars and particularly in Dante the fixed stars the stars that don't move that point to god mm. and but in this case they are they are stars that are moving and migrating and therefore they're these black dots against the sky, right? And yet they are still bringing us an orientation uh, towards like that. the good. Um, and so I thought it was beautiful. Like like you said, just the language of it, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. But I also thought the metaphor was quite lovely and complex as well. That's how I read it.
2: Okay. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, we're something
0: about... Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. I, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I mean, we're out of time. We just are. I, it's just a fact, Ian. It's just the limitations of, uh, of time have, have, uh, come upon us and, uh, you're going to have to bear that burden. I'm sorry. Till <laughs> till next time. Do you have any final thoughts, anything that you're going to be looking for, anything that you need to get off your chest, uh, before we, before we wrap this up? Actually just a
2: question that I'm asking myself and, and, we can answer it as we go along. But at the end of last session, we were talking about an age of destruction. And my question is, is there anything, any such thing as an age that's not an age of destruction? And I'm not sure what Tolstoy thinks about that. But that's one of the questions I'm asking. Seems like all ages are ages of worry. And so maybe he, maybe whatever thematic content this work has is going to address that idea. Heidi?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's good. I, I mean, it's a good question. Probably every generation is anxious about losing what has gone before, right? Um, you know, Harold Bloom and the anxiety of influence idea, um, and that that's what I mean. Bloom argues that that's what makes all art is that is our anxiety about the past, mm-hmm. either not wanting to repeat it or wanting to protect it. One or the other, um, and and that's that's what drives human society forward. He argues. I don't think he's completely right, but I think he's bringing up some good questions that tie into yeah. what you say.
0: We could talk about the Middle Ages here if you want, but we don't have time for that. <laughs> Dark ages. We've done
1: plenty of that on this show for sure.
0: <laughs> um. All right. Well, this has been a great time. Next week we are going to do the first half of part three. So. Um, I don't know the exact page count. Um, but that's what we're gonna do. You can check this check the schedule, guys. In the meantime, be sure to check out all the things that Ian and Heidi are up to and the podcasts that they're on and and the the classes that they're teaching and all the great things that are going on at Center for Lit, of course.
1: What about you, David? What is going on over at Goldberry Studios?
0: And where can I get one of those hoodies? Well, these are last season's hoodies, Ian. But I'm gonna getting new ones, which are gonna be black with with white tassels, and the logo is gonna be up here. They're gonna be really nice, like really clean. And then mm-hmm. I'm getting some cream colored long sleeve like crew neck shirts that are just gonna say Goldberry across the chest. They're I gonna to be them. really, really, really classy uh, for when you're locked in a classy hotel. Um, <laughs> we have just launched Withy Windle again. Season four of Withy Wendell is back. Uh, we kicked off that with uh, the first episode. The guest is Gary Schmidt and we've added... uh, Oh,
2: what a lovely man.
0: Story time uh, has changed a little bit. So instead of reading a book and talking about it together, Graham and I are actually sort of uh, mildly performatively reading fairy tales and folk tales and things like that with sound effects and all that in the background. So each episode we bring one that the other person doesn't know is coming, and we read it out loud, and then the person who's listening does a mystery science theater commentary as they're going. So in the first one I read... The golden egg and then the second one he read a really weird danish one and so we comment on those so that's a lot of fun so way the is back uh you can check that out wherever fine podcasts are uh found <laughs> yeah and then east of eden we're we're only got a couple episodes left on east of eden so we're gonna be talking about what long book we're doing next um there's a short list that people have been requesting so we're gonna have to decide that here soon but um and I know Ian. We've talked a little bit about you coming back on the podcast for some things in 2023. So I know when Gentleman in Moscow is done, we'll have to discuss your uh, your involvement, what will allow you to come on for, and so forth. <laughs> um, whether whether uh, your wife will let you out of. Um, the yeah, I was going to
2: say I'll put you in touch with my people. Yeah, yeah
0: <laughs> exactly. All right. Well. That's all for this week. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Thanks to everybody who subscribes to Close Reads HQ and makes this all possible. Thanks, of course, to Logan, who makes the post-production happen. And uh, for Heidi White, for Ian Andrews, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Till next time, happy reading.